And tonight as we finish the book of Isaiah, I thank you that we've been able to go through this, this wonderful book of the Old Testament written for us. And Lord, may we just look at these things that um, are here as we finish the, uh, the last chapter. And Lord, look forward to your coming and, and what our future is. And so just teach us right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, in these last few chapters of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 60 to 66, that Isaiah is speaking a lot about the end of time. And, and Isaiah gives a lot of prophecies about the latter days, about the second coming of Jesus Christ, about the millennium reign, about the new heaven and the new earth. And so these things are written. And keep in mind that Isaiah, when he was receiving these visions, clear back in chapter 2, that these visions concerning the latter days, that these things must come to pass. And as we study the scriptures, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writers that we know that we can put it together and we can get a good idea of those events that surround the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what is interesting is that in the church today, and, and please don't think that I'm having a critical spirit, but there are many Christian churches today that won't speak about the end time that are all millennials, that I think that's a growing trend where they don't believe that there is a millennium reign, that they perhaps had a preterist view, that is, that these events have already come to pass and Jesus just needs to come back. And, and so there's all these different thoughts on end times. But I think that as we go through the scriptures like what we are, just reading the Bible, that we see that Jesus Christ, of course, is going to come back and these things are to come to pass. And when it talks about the Lord reigning from Jerusalem and that, that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the see, we will go into the book of Revelation, and we know that John the Revelator is going to tell us in chapter 20 of that book that there is going to be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And we can believe that that literally is going to happen, because there are those who say, well, it's just symbolic or it's an allegory. Well, here's the thing. Isaiah, as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, he speaks about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Matter of fact, he speaks about the coming Messiah and his advents, both first and second, more than any Old Testament prophet. And as he would write about Jesus' first coming, his birth and um, his ministry, his sufferings, that he's the one that was the lamb led as, uh, uh, to the slaughter, we know that those prophets and as you look at the Old Testament prophets, they gave over a hundred specific prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. And we can go back to those prophecies and we can see that every single one of those prophecies were fulfilled to the letter, every dot and tittle concerning the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every single one of them. So as Matthew's writing his gospel, he is writing to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is the king of kings. And that's why Matthew goes back in a lot of quotes from Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets to show them that, hey, the Messiah that was prophesied of the Old Testament prophets, he fulfilled. Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies. So if Jesus fulfilled over 100 prophecies of his first coming, concerning his first coming, that the 200 prophecies, speaking of his second coming, we can be confident that those are going to be fulfilled too, literally. So as 
Isaiah says these things must come to pass. When he's speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, he, he speaks about the tribulation period, as he speaks about the millennium reign, as he speaks about the new heaven and the new earth, we can be confident that these things are going to come to pass. This is what our future holds. And Isaiah wants us to understand these things as the scripture gives us the end time prophecy concerning the return of the Lord. So as we go through it, it's exciting to me and we know that we can be confident that these things are going to come to pass. Just as John, as we will see in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, that John, the angel, said, write these things down that what? Must come to pass. Not that they might come to pass. So these things that we know are going to be fulfilled. And let's begin to look at chapter 65, verse uh, 11. Um, we'll go back to verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord. He's speaking about the rebellion of the nation at this time, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare uh, a table for Gad, who furnish a drink offering for Menai. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So God's going to deal with their false worship, which they would, because they would go off into captivity by the Babylonians and then Nebuchadnezzar in the third wave of uh, taking, you know, the uh, people from Judah away captive would then destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and destroyed uh, the Solomon's temple. And then in verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. Verse 15, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. And so remember that there is blessing for the true servant as we read this. And there's going to be judgment for the one who is in rebellion, who is not you know, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And as we read this, we can think, man, this is some harsh language. But keep in mind this, even as Paul would write in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, that there will be the wrath of God that will come upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. God is going to judge sin. And as we go through those chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 18, that we're going to see that it's going to be that God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. But here, the thing to keep in mind, that there is blessing for the true servant and for the one who, who believes in him and is looking to him and following after him, believes his word, there's going to be joy of heart and, and there's going to be um, ones that are, are going to be blessed and benefited and uh, we are going to swear by the God of truth. And so here's the thing, that as you and I, as we are walking with him, and Isaiah is going to speak about it again as we continue through this chapter, that you and I that believe in him, we will not be ashamed. We're not going to be ashamed. 
but we're going to reign with him. We're going to be with him. But for the one who doesn't believe in the Lord, there is going to be judgment that will come, and there is going to be sorrow, as we read here. Um, there is going to be grief uh, that is mentioned here. And so uh, you're going to be hungry, is what it says, and uh, you're going to be thirsty. We need to keep in mind this. I, I hope for us in this Christmas season, as we in, enter into 2019, that we would have a heart for the lost. And to know that those who don't have Jesus Christ, that there's hunger there, there's thirst, you know, that is there spiritually. And it was Jesus that in John chapter 6 said, believe in me, the bread of life that's come from heaven. And as you believe in me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. And there are people all around us that we care for and love and that are linked to us in our lives, that we look at their lives and we can see that they're hungry, right? They're thirsty. And there's sorrow in their hearts. But for you and for me, there should be joy in our hearts because we have the Lord. And he dwells in our hearts and we have his promises and his blessings and the promise of his presence. But there are those around us who don't have that. So I pray that, that we would have a heart for them to share with them the gospel, share with them the truth of what God's word declares and to pray for them. And then in verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And so as we read this, it's interesting that, that he changes subjects, Isaiah, very quickly. And all of a sudden, he's talking about a new heavens and a new earth. And he says, behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And that Hebrew word for create is bara, which means creating something out of nothing. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God bara created the heavens and the earth. So he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And that's important for us to understand because there's teaching out there. And again, many Christians, uh, churches, that they teach, well, what's going to happen is the new heaven and new earth that is going to be reformed. There's going to be a renewing um, of uh, a restoration of the earth as we now know it. And that is not the word that he uses here. You see, there's a different Hebrew word, asa, that means creating out of existing material. That's not what Isaiah uses here. Isaiah uses the word bar, which means creating out of nothing. And as we look at the whole of Scripture, he says, listen, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And as we look at the events, we, we can understand the major events that are going to take place that is yet in the future that we know that there's going to be the rapture of the church, I believe, that's going to happen before the day of the Lord begins. Now, the day of the Lord is a term that speaks of a period of time that, is, that begins with the tribulation period. So the Lord's going to come for us, the church. He promises that he will take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth 
to test those who dwell on the earth. There's only one time in history that we know of that there's going to be tribulation upon the whole earth, and that's what? Daniel's 70th week, what we call the tribulation period. He promises the church of Philadelphia, we'll go over it in Revelation chapter 3, to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. Not that we will go through the tribulation, but the hour of tribulation. And that's why we see the doctrine of immensity. I'll get it out. Um, and, you know, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. There, that's easier to say. So, so Jesus said, listen, that the Son of Man comes at a time that you do not know, when you're least expected. And as he's saying that, you don't know the day or the hour that he's going to come. And I believe he's making reference to the rapture of the church. Keep in mind when we talk about the return of the Lord, there's two distinct events. The rapture of the church, which will take place before the day of the Lord. It is Paul that told us, you're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So comfort one another with these words. And I believe he's going to take the church out of and away from the hour of tribulation. The day of the Lord is that tribulation period, or more formally called Daniel's 70th week. At the end of that seven-year period is the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he will come back literally physically we will come back with him he will go to Basra as you remember the rock city Petra gather the remnant of the Jews that are there hiding from the Antichrist he will come back to the Mount of Olives touchdown on the Mount of Olives Zechariah chapter 14 says the Mount of Olives will heave in half and, and then he will judge the nations he's going to restore the nation of Israel just as he promises here in Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets do and then he he's going to usher in the millennium reign where he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Then after a thousand years, there's going to be one last rebellion as the uh, Satan is going to be let out of the bottomless pit. He is going to lead one last rebellion. There are going to be those who will join in with Satan, as you read in Revelation chapter 20, as there are going to be those who have not made a choice, you know, during the millennium reign, they have a choice to make. You're going to follow the devil or you're going to follow Jesus and they will join in in that rebellion it will be squashed immediately put down and then they will be sentenced to the outer darkness uh, as they will be put into Gehenna the lake of fire and then it tells us that at the end of the thousand years that the heavens and the earth that we know now are going to fade away John writes about that in Revelation chapter 20 I'll read it to you but then I saw as one a great white throne of him who sat on it whose face and the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them so what happens is is the heavens and the earth that we know now are going to fade away they're they're going to as peter writes in second peter chapter three that the high schoolers are going over their lesson even tonight that we know that it's going to go up um, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, he writes, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Peter writes about it in his writings that the elements, the heavens and the earth are going to melt away, dissolve in a fervent heat, in, 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 in a loud noise. And then the great white throne judgment. 
And those of the unrighteous dead is called the second resurrection are going to stand before the great white throne judgment. You and I who are believers, we won't stand at the great white throne judgment. We will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ spoken of, of Romans chapter 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we'll go over all those things so you have a good understanding of it. And those who stand at the great white throne judgment are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, they're going to be judged according to their works. Uh, they've rejected the gospel. They're going to be found guilty. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that's described to us in Revelations chapters 21 and 22. So if you hear those teachings that, well, he's just going to restore and renew, there is going to be some... Um, geologic, you know, restoration that's going to take place in the millennium reign. But eventually a whole new heaven, a whole new earth, a whole new Jerusalem is going to be created by the Lord. You know what's interesting? I was doing a little reading on this, and, and maybe you'll find it to be interesting, that uh, when Peter writes, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away in a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And that word element uh, has the meaning, it's um, the Greek word stokion, and it literally means in order. And oftentimes it is used to refer to the alphabet, the Greek alphabet. And as you know, you think about that, he uses that word element. They have order, referring to the Greek alphabet. December 2nd, 1942. Jim, you probably know the story, what happened. Underneath Stagfield University of Chicago, um, Rinko Ferme, the father of a modern nuclear age, that he was the first one to cause the first atomic reaction. He would have two other scientists that would help him. He, he ended up, uh, a Rinko Ferme, uh, as winning the Nobel Prize for Physics a few years after that, but it would begin the project, the Manhattan Project, to develop the nuclear bomb. He had Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein that would help him in that project. And, of course, they were two great Jewish scholars and scientists. But the first atomic bomb, it was tested, I believe, in July 1945 down in New Mexico, and... And um, that brought in the atomic, um, you know, age. And President Truman, of course, would use the atomic bomb on Japan to end World War II. But what's interesting that here Peter's using the word elements, uh, that is, there's order, reference to the Greek alphabet. And what was interesting, I was thinking about that, when it talks about the nuclear reaction, that there is the radiation, there's the alpha rays, the beta rays, the gamma rays, the delta rays, all those, the Greek alphabet. What do you think that Peter is telling us? That the universe is going to go up, I believe, in a huge nuclear reaction. That's what he's telling us. And the elements, and here I think that Peter should really be the father of the nuclear age, you know, because he's speaking about that. It's so amazing when you look at it, how literal that the Bible is. And a great noise in Colossians chapter 1 says that everything was created by him, and all things consist, or he holds all things together. 
And you see, when you look at the atom and you have like particles and, you know, like particles repel and scientists have always tried to figure out what keeps the atom together. Why doesn't it repel and explode? And, and when I was in junior high, they had a term, the nuclear glue or atomic glue. And there's a lot of physics involved. I'm not a physicist. Um, I took physics in college. I almost flunked the class because I didn't understand it all. It was so hard. But there's theories and different things like that. And I love the Bible because it gives us a real simple answer to that, that all things consist or he holds all things together. And one day he's going to let it go. And it's all going to go up in a nuclear reaction in a great noise and a fervent heat. Isn't that amazing? I love to think about that. But the important thing for you and for me today is he holds your life together. And as you allow him to do that, as we enter into a new year, you're going to see that he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. That you allow yourself to be in his hand. He created you. And even as Isaiah declared, that as he's talking about his people, you were created for my glory. That Revelation chapter 4, that we are created for his good pleasures. He wants to use you. He, he wants to do a wonderful work in you and through you. But you be in his hands and allow him to hold your life together because if you don't, it's going to unravel. And the heat and the pressure and the noise and all of that is going to begin to come into your life. So you trust him and you look to him. So here as he talks about a new heaven and a new earth and a, and a new Jerusalem, and, and then he continues as he switches gears once again. He, he speaks about, um, in verse 20, he goes back to the millennium reign. So no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be a curse. Interesting. The millennium reign, where righteousness is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea. We've seen that Isaiah also said that truth is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Jesus is going to be ruling from Jerusalem, the son of David. And, and he is going to sit upon the throne of David, just as it was told to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it's going to be ruling the nations with a rod of iron. But as we go through the millennium reign, that is going to give a description to us that is very wonderful, peace. And, and um, we're, we're going to read about that in just a moment. But there is going to be death in the millennium reign. It's going to be unusual. This is not the new heaven and the new earth. In the new heaven and new earth in Revelation chapter 21, there's no more death, no more tears, no more sickness. But in the millennium reign, it seems like there is going to be death. Because people will call me and say, is there going to be death in millennium reign? Well, here's an indication that no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. It's going to be very unusual. And the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse. Will there be sin in the millennium reign, even though righteousness covers the earth? Zechariah chapter 14 talks about that in the millennium reign that the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and those nations that don't do that that there's going to be no rains and the plagues will come against them. 
We know at the end of the millennium reign that, again, Satan is going to be let out and lead one last rebellion against the Lord, which is going to be short-lived. He will simply speak, and, and it will be put down. So, again, it, it amazes me that here is the Lord reigning from Jerusalem in our presence, utopia, uh, we know that uh, it's going to be as described here as we're going to continue reading that, that here is the light of the world that is before us. We're going to go up and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It's going to be so wonderful, and yet people are still going to rebel against the Lord. It's evident from the Scripture. And as I think about that, the, the hardness of man's heart so there's going to be blessing in the millennium reign. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that day before they call. Verse 24, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So the wolf is going to lay down with the lamb. Uh, the lion shall eat straw. It's going to be a wonderful time. I like where Isaiah says in the beginning part of Isaiah that the child will play with the cobra and not be hurt and, and be able to play in the streets and be safe. Because we know that our kids today cannot play in the streets and be safe. And as I think about what our kids go through and what's happening, it breaks our hearts, doesn't it? And in the millennium reign, it's going to be wonderful and seeing the wolf and the lamb feeding together and, and, um, and the serpent's going to eat the dust and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. In chapter 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So as we go into the last and final chapter of Isaiah, God is enthroned in heaven and the earth uh, at his command. God is sovereign and is in control. And God is saying, you want to build something for me? Something that's beautiful, a house. And we think that how impressive it is to God. And here he tells us what he really wants. And it's a word for us here tonight as we end the year that what he really wants from us is a poor and contrite spirit and one who trembles at his word one who respects and takes heed to his word that's what he really wants he wants our hearts and I pray for, for us as a church that we never get into, oh, if we get bigger and grander and more popular and more programs, that that's our strength. And, and, and whatever the Lord does, we're going to be thankful for. But more than anything, what I pray is that we would be humbled before the Lord 
And that we would be a people with a poor and contrite spirit. That is, that we desire to honor him, to walk with him, to know his word, to enjoy him. We tremble at his word because we believe it. It was David that wrote in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And I hope for us individually in our families, in this church family, that the sacrifices of God are being humbled before him, repentive towards him when we're going the wrong direction that we honor his word, even as Psalm 138 declares, that he honors his word above his name and that we're desiring to live lives that are pleasing to him. You know, for me, it doesn't matter how popular I am. It doesn't matter, you know, I can't boast about anything. But more than anything, Lord, I want my heart to be right with you and to be humble before you. And as we read this, in verse 3, he who kills as a bull, as if he slays a man, who sacrifices a lamb, as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering, as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So speaking here, how they were rebelling against the Lord, there was a form of godliness. Remember, as we've gone through this book, they were observing the Sabbath. They were bringing grain offerings. They were doing sacrifices but they weren't doing it in truth. They were mixing it with pagan you know, worship and beliefs and idol worship and all of that. And the Lord's saying, listen, what you're doing here, you think that you're impressing me? You kill a bull for a sacrifice? To me, I look at it as like slaying a man. You sacrifice a lamb? It's like breaking a dog's neck in my eyes. You bring the grain offering, it's like swine's blood. And of course, uh, swine were considered unclean. You're not impressing me. You burn incense, but you're blessing an idol is what you're doing. And you've chosen your own ways. But it's an abomination to me and what you're doing. You know, I said this before, but one of the things we'll talk about more on New Year's Eve that... I am concerned about what we see in the church, the church at large, more and more. And even what we even read in our own newspapers, in, in our, our own community. Articles being written by those who call themselves ministers that will talk about Jesus coming and dying for our sins as an offense. An offense to them and bad theology. And I'm thinking, Really? Is it getting that bad in, in progressive theology and getting away from the word of God? But those are the things that we're seeing that even Paul would talk about that in the last days it's going to be perilous times. And he gives a description. Paul's writing some, some of the last words that he's recording in the New Testament to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It is going to be perilous times. It's going to be dangerous times. It's going to be very difficult times. And he says men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And he gives a description of men. There's a misdirected love. And, and the men are going to be fierce. And it's 
interesting when he writes that word fierce, you know, Paul does to Timothy in that letter, he borrows that word from Matthew from the story of the demoniacs at the Gadarenes, that they were exceedingly fierce, same word. You don't think that some of the things that we see, the very violent acts, aren't demonic? Paul said that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. And there are going to be those who have a form of godliness, but not in truth or in righteousness. We are in the last days. And we are seeing those that even today, they have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And evil men and imposters growing worse and worse. And it's interesting as, as we go into verse 4, so I will choose their delusions, is what it says, and bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't hear, and they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not delight. It's interesting that Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, that he's going to come with lying signs and wonders, and that there is going to be, you know, um, this... Uh, this strong delusion that he's going to sin, that they should believe the lie. I've heard so much written about what is the lie. Well, it's in context of the Antichrist coming, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He will proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. So Paul's telling us what the lie is. And we will see in Revelations chapters 11 and 12 and 13, uh, as we know from Daniel's uh, writings, that the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period is going to go into that rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, set up an image of himself. He's going to proclaim himself as God. And the Jews are going to say no. And whatever that image is that he sets up, that as we know that the Antichrist desiring to be worshipped, that the Jews are going to say, no, you're not our Messiah. We're not going to worship your image. That's one thing that we've learned, that you don't worship idols since 605 B.C. We're not going to go back to that. And then the Antichrist, whoever does not make their allegiance to him, will begin to heavily persecute the Jews, and he will begin to heavily persecute the tribulation saints. The Jews will flee to the rock city of Petra, as we discussed last week, that Isaiah chapter 16 speaks about, as we saw in Isaiah um, you know, chapter 63, that we know that um, the Lord is going to preserve a remnant of the Jews in, in Basra, and then he will come back uh, and get them, and then he'll come back to the Mount of Olives. So a lot that's happening. So this delusion that's being spoken of, some that believe that it's speaking of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. But let's continue in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice of the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. And before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Interesting that this prophecy that's being spoken of here, speaking of not only the restoration of Israel, but the Israel becoming a nation once again, being born. Can, can a nation be birthed at once? Have you heard such a thing? Has it ever been spoken that a nation be born in one day? Absolutely amazing. 2,000 years, 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman legion surrounded Jerusalem. They broke through the walls. They tore the temple apart, even as Jesus said, that not one stone would be left upon another. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. They took 100,000 Jews away captive. It was the end of Israel, as we know it, as, as a nation. And even as the prophets have spoke about that they will be out of the land, even Jesus spoke about it, they will build an embankment around you. And Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And the Romans came over and took over Jerusalem and as they ruled over the land and destroyed it. And they were out of the land for 2,000 years. And then all of a sudden, out of the ashes comes the beauty. Remember that Isaiah talked about that. And out of the ashes of the Holocaust, the Jews started coming back to Israel. They, they wanted to escape Europe. They want to come back to their homeland. And the United Nations is trying to figure out what do we do with them because they begin to discover the horrors of the Holocaust, six million Jews that were put to death by Hitler. And, and, and so they thought, well, maybe we'll give them some part in northern Africa. Maybe we'll give them some land even in South America. But they kept coming back to Israel. And then the British mandate came and said that Britain said, we're going to leave. And so our proposal to the United Nations is that part of this land is going to be divided up called Palestine. Part of it is going to be called Israel or the Jewish state is what the official name was. And so the Jews said, yes, we will take that deal. And the Palestinians were told by those Arab nations, don't take that deal because if Israel declares independence, we're going to push them into the sea. We're going to destroy them. The last British soldier leaves midnight, May 14, 1948. Ben-Gurion stands up. He declares independence of Israel, and he declares Israel as a nation. It was absolutely amazing. The United States under President Truman, it was important for the United States to sign on the United Nations plan to give its okay there was a lot of pressure put on President Truman to reject it, that we don't, we don't recognize the new Jewish state. We absolutely don't. And he was pressured by even a lot of his cabinet members, the Secretary of Defense. We've just come out of World War II, and, and there's going to be this huge war that's going to break out in the Middle East, and we're going to be dragged into it, and we can't afford that. President Truman declined to listen to that council. And so at midnight, Israel, May 14, 1948, they declare independence. 11 minutes later, President Truman signs a declaration. And the declaration is this. You can pull it up. This government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine 
and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new Jewish state. And here's where it gets interesting. When President Truman, 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion made that announcement of independence, that he comes in and he says that the authority of the new Jewish state, you don't have a name. So he crossed it out. You can pull it up on Google, the document. He crossed it out and he put the state of Israel. You got to have a name. Then he puts a date, May 14th, 1948. And then something very interesting at the bottom of the document, he put 6-11. He put the time that he signed it. When you had your children and the birth certificate, what did it have on it? The name of the baby, the date that the baby was born, and the time. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing, the Bible, how accurate it is? And here Isaiah 2,700 years ago is saying, can a nation be born in one day? Listen, when I was in college, you know, I was looking, is the Bible really the Word of God? And I needed some answers. And in going through the Word of God, one of the things that really stood out to me that this truly is God's Word is the promises that He made to Israel becoming a nation again and fulfilled, fulfilled in 1948. 2,000 years out of their original homeland and they come back just as the Bible said would happen and they become a nation again. Only God can do that. Unheard of in human history that any group of people that were out of their homelands after more than three or four generations were able to come back to their original homeland. And after 2,000 years, exactly like the Bible said, all of a sudden the birth of Israel and Jesus said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, know that summer is near and the coming, my coming is very near. And that began the super sign as end time teachers, Dr. Wolvo and Dwight Pentecost and Thomas Ice and Dr. Ron Rhodes and all those who I read that are just experts on end time prophecy. That's the super sign that started the end time clock. And we're in the last days and you see the events that we're going to read about leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ cannot happen unless there's a national Israel. And Amos says when they come back into the land, they're going to plant it and it's going to grow. And it's amazing. The ancient cities, the ruins, as Isaiah talked about, are being rebuilt again and they're not going to be plucked out. But they're going to go through tremendous tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation that when it seems like they're going under in the valley of Megiddo as the forces of the Antichrist and all the nations begin to gather in that final world war that the Lord's going to come back and they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Mashiach even as Jesus said you won't see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and that's where Jesus said if he had not come back man would have destroyed himself and that's where he will judge the nations, restore Israel, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. We're going to go over all that. But it all started with Israel becoming a nation once again. We cannot ignore the fact that the Jews are back in their homeland, coming back more and more, and that they're a nation once again. 
1948, a few minutes after they made that declaration, made that declaration, the independence of Israel, seven Arab states attacked them. They didn't have an organized air force, army, military, but God saw them through and they won. And the wars of Israel and the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, absolutely amazing. And the people are going, hey, maybe, maybe God is doing something here as you talk to them. And they were isolated. They had no help. They had no help against overwhelming odds. We just heard today on the news that the United States is pulling all our troops out of Syria, right? And not to look at it at a foreign policy, whether you agree with that or not, but a biblical perspective is it does not surprise me because guess what? Israel's left alone. And guess who's going to really entrench themselves deeply as we've already talked about and we see it in the news is Russia and Iran and Turkey. And Turkey's already said that when the United States forces, mostly on the eastern side of the Euphrates River's leaves, that's where we're going. And we're going to entrench there and they're probably going to fight against the Kurds very heavily, but they're going to be entrenched. That's where the oil is. Russia wants that oil. They're coming together. They're having a summit. What are we going to do? And we know that that's going to lead to Ezekiel 38 and 39. The stage is being set. Amazing. You read the newspaper. You read the Bible. And it's just as the Bible says. Now, when is Ezekiel 38 going to happen? I don't know. But there are stage-setting events that are taking place that as you read it, you think, wow, Lord, your word is true. Every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. Listen, I'm running a little late, but we're going to finish here. Just a couple more minutes. Verse 9, shall I bring the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who caused delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. That you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom. That you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her side shall be your carried. And be dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. As we see here, Jerusalem, uh, it talks about that calamity would come to them. Um, but we also know that God is going to restore them and, and the abundance of her glory be restored. And then verse 14, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flour uh, flourish like grass, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and a rebuke with flames of fire. And for by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. So during the tribulation period and we know that he's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. Verse 17, those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves 
to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and abomination in the mouth, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. And verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Interesting, verse 18, that some say that perhaps this could be a reference to Revelation chapter 5 in that new song out of, you know, you have redeemed us by your blood out of every tongue, tribes, and peoples. It's the song of the church. It's going to be the song that we're going to be singing when we are all together around the throne of God, that new song. It's not the song of Israel. It's not the song of angels. It's the song of the church. In verse 18, perhaps a reference to that, gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape. I will send to the nations to Tarshish and Pole and Lud who draw, draw the bow and Tubal and Javan in the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles and they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and in chariots and in litters on mules on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem says the Lord as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord so I think that verses 18 through 20 is speaking about that that in the millennium reign as the Lord is ruling from Jerusalem we will go up uh, upon the holy mountain and uh, we'll be bringing an offering as Isaiah has already said and I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. When we get to Ezekiel, we're going to read about the tribulation period, that at the end of the tribulation, that tribulation temple will be destroyed because the Antichrist desecrates it. But then in the millennium reign, there's going to be a new temple that the Lord's going to build, and, and the Levites and priests are going to be serving. And we'll talk about that later. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look and upon the corpse of the men who have transgressed against me for their own worm does not die and their fire is not quenched and they shall be a abhorrence to all flesh. So the book kind of ends on, you know, a negative heavy note, but it's telling us that God is ultimately going to be victorious. So I want to end with this and then we're going to go to prayer. Listen. What is the Lord telling us? It's about him and being citizens of heaven. Not about, you know, the things that we have making it a priority in our lives. We're blessed in this life to have what we have. No doubt about it. But you keep the Lord a priority because all this, what's going to happen? It's going to go up in a fervent heat. All the stuff that we get so upset about and work for, yes, we work hard for it. It's important to us. But keep it in perspective. Keep the Lord the priority, okay? It's about the kingdom. It's about knowing him, serving him. It's about walking with him and keeping him the priority in every area of our lives. So, Father, we thank you so much for the book of Isaiah and a lot that we went over. And so amazing that we know that these things are going to come to pass. And, Father, so I pray that for us here, that we would keep you the priority in everything. And Lord, every area of our lives, keeping our eyes on you. And Father, I thank you for the wonderful future that we have. I'm thankful that Jesus came in his first advent. And so we celebrate that in the coming days.
to save us from sin. And I pray that even though this Christmas season may be hard or difficult for some of us, that, Lord, that we would have a joy unspeakable in our hearts because we belong to you. We've been saved from our sins. And I pray that also that there be a peace that passes understanding. And, Lord, that to know that we got a wonderful future ahead. So, Lord, may we just keep you in the forefront of our days ahead. And, Lord, trusting you and putting ourselves in your hands, but all things are held together by you. So, Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that, that, um, that we can be here. I, I pray that for those who are traveling, that you keep them safe. You bless our time with friends and family. We look forward to this weekend services. But, but Lord, I pray that this Christmas that we would slow down and that we would just marvel at the incredible gift that's been given to us, the gift of salvation, your son. For a child is born and a son is given. And so, Lord, we have much to be thankful for. I thank you for this church. I look forward to what you have for us. And Lord, may we keep our eyes on you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.